Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Angley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? Ryan, I'm doing great today. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you as well. And today we are doing uh, we are doing an episode on Blue Velvet, uh, a film, uh, Todd, you may have seen once or twice. Uh, so how times. did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> how we got here is I had a plan that I, I didn't did. tell you about. And my plan was, in the last episode, because we don't plan... You. Exactly, I dropped it on you. you. Yeah. I sprung it on you. Yeah. I had this idea, uh, inspired by an email from uh, a listener, who said it was uh, that th- they really. Oh, actually, this has happened several times. It's not just one person, but they always find it a, a little bit easier to understand uh, newer concepts if we talk about a film than if we're doing like straight on into uh, into the theory or into like a philosophical work or whatever. And I and I knew okay, we're starting this thing on Kant. I want to make sure. That we have something that is possible for people to grab onto, if the like us trying to get direct into the text is maybe not working for them. And so I had it in my head, I was like, whatever the lesson is, I'm going to make that. I'm going to tell Todd, I'm going to make that the, the next episode. We never know what the lesson is ahead of time. Uh, it's always something that emerges over the course of the conversation. It just so happened that it ended up to be Blue Velvet, a film that you, uh, as I said, have seen once or twice. Um, what is your relationship with David Lynch's uh, filmography before we get uh, into our conversation uh, well, more, more generally? That's yes. an interesting question. So I, it, Lynn, I was, I was in a way born as a theorist writing on Lost Highway. So I went and saw Amazing. Lost Highway at the theater at a multiplex of all things, <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote my first, what I consider my first serious article on, you know, theoretical article, whatever. And I sent it to Cinema Journal, which is the top film journal. And they mm-hmm. didn't just reject it, which was <laughs> nice of them. And they said, they sent it back and they said, well, it is a film. It might be nice to talk about the form of the film once or twice in this essay, which was very good. I was pissed. I'm like, ah, oh, come on. Uh, but then I did. I looked, went back, looked at the film again and saw, yeah, it actually, the form is pretty important in a Lynch film. So <laughs> that true. was when I, that was when my, and then I, my interest in Lynch was born then, and then the second thing that happened to me was I suffer from anyone who knows me knows this is true terrible insomnia, and one of the things that I used to try to do is I would try to watch a boring film, film I knew was boring, mm-hmm. when I couldn't sleep, and then I hopefully would fall asleep. So I put on Eraserhead, which uh, I, yeah. I love. I love Eraserhead, but it's not a. It's not a. It's not a Chuck Norris movie or a or a <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> it's a little boring. So. I uh, <laughs> come on, but the problem that's really was, funny. I, I I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I wouldn't. I, that's there's a lot of adjectives I think about with that film, but boring. Is, anyway, but please continue. I know it doesn't see. I know, but I thought. Well, here's the problem, which it actually turns out it's not boring because <laughs> I stayed up all night. I kept jotting my. I was like totally riveted. I had seen it <laughs> once before. Totally riveted, jotting down notes to myself, and I'm like, oh, I think I can come up with something on this, and then. And that was when I was living in Texas. So I, this is long before my book on Lynch came out. And then mm-hmm. I saw Mulholland Drive. I wrote an essay on that, sent that to Cinema Journal. That got accepted. So I and, and then then I, so I had these two published essays. I had these thoughts on Eraserhead, and and my friend and mentor and dissertation director Mac Walter Davis said to me, "You know, you should write a book on Lynch." And I'm like, eh, "I don't know. It seems like." And so, I, but then I did. And then that's nice. so, so nice. I wrote in 2000 and whatever, 2007, 2008. 
I wrote a book on on Lynch. So I, I, I and Blue Velvet. Interestingly, I thought Blue Velvet was the hardest one. So I had mm. this whole notion of Lynch is splitting the cinematic space or the cinematic uh, narrative into two worlds, a world of centered on fantasy and a world centered on desire stripped of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I had the most trouble fitting Blue Velvet into that. So Interesting. Just, anyway, so that's I, that's more hmm. than you asked for, but that's... No, my, no, but it's that's, amazing. I, I saw Blue Velvet when it came out uh, in 1986, and I was in uh, in just in college, and, and mm-hmm. one of my high school friends loved, fell in love with the line. We, we because we were, of course, poor, we drank... <laughs> Paps, we drank a lot of Paps Blue Ribbon, yep, <laughs> like for yep. a booth. Uh, we didn't drink much Heineken, but someone would say, we'd be out and someone would say, I, I think I'd like a Heineken. And my friend would every single time scream out, Heineken, fuck that shit, Paps Blue Ribbon. Like he just would do it just <laughs> constantly. So I have I have sort of fond memories of, of Paps Blue Ribbon, fonder than it deserves probably. And... Um, <laughs> of that time with the right as the film came out. Uh, I love that. And I love, um, just a, just a quick little comment. This is, it's my favorite kind of product placement. Not that it, like, I don't think it's product placement, uh, but like, <laughs> yeah, I don't this think you got paid for that. I, d- I doubt it, but it's, it's my favorite. Like, it, like yeah. the, like the conversation, the very awkward conversation that, um, Jeffrey and Sandy have when they go to see Dorothy sing, and he's like, "Do you like Heineken?" I was like, "Oh no, I never." And my dad drinks Miller. And then uh, Kyle McLaughlin's like, "Yeah, yeah, King of Beers." Like, I just think, very awkward. Say Budweiser. Oh, Budweiser. Just, Sorry, I just yeah, made it yeah, Miller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, Bud. Yeah, King of Beers. Yeah, he says very Bud's awkwardly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other, the other kind of product placement I like is the very intentional Coca-Cola product placement in The Sopranos. It's like my favorite. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. I, it's anyway, um, yeah. but so we are talking about Blue Velvet, and we're going to talk about it in a very well, maybe in a way this might uh, resolve by the end of this conversation. It might resolve some of the difficulty you had uh, fitting. I uh, think it will th- yeah. this film. Oh well, I I hope it does. Um, yeah. So we're going to talk about this um, in relation specifically to uh, to Kant's uh, philosophy, and wanna, I want to hew as closely as we can to things that fit in to uh, critique of pure reason because that's sort of what we're on. But it's going to be, I think, impossible not to mention. Uh, the sublime, uh, which is a, a later critique. concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the th- critique that we're on the faculty talk- of judgment. Right. Y- yeah. So that's going to be hard. Um, the and and that is uh, where m- most of the Kant that is imported into film theory uh, does come from. It comes from his uh, his work on aesthetic judgment. This is n- uh, and I think the this is not a controversial uh, uh, take, but I think the person of record who has done the most. Uh, to advance Kant's uh, theory of uh, aesthetic judgment in film theory is uh, Noel Carroll. I think that's probably... Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So um, there's also... He's not the only person, certainly. Uh, The... I mean, more recently, uh, Eugenia Brinkema talks, uh, has a really great section of her really great book, uh, The Forms of the Affects on um, Disgust. She talks about... Um, and, re- and its relation to Kant uh, at one point in the book. Um, and that's, so that's, if you're looking for Kant and film theory, that's what you're mostly going to get. And, um, and it's, 
is very good, well worth going into. I want to try to set us on a, a more difficult path of trying to do something that's a little bit different and importing concept, more concepts from uh, Critique of Pure Reason, if we can. Um, and also, of course, we're making this tie to Lacan. So that's that's the goal. That's 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 our yeah. That's our thing. So if um, it's just going to happen that we're just probably not going to talk, talk about um, certain things uh, that may be uh, I don't know already out there um, because we're trying to trying to make this make this uh, this this tie to uh, to Lacan Lacan as uh, Kara said to me the other day that's what we're trying to do yeah, uh, yeah. to to, sh- to show this sort of thing like so Lacan yeah. in uh, film theory that's what we're trying to do here so yeah. um, where's a good place to start well I think with the figure of Dorothy right like Dorothy nice. is and this is a point that I think is to the immense credit of Michel Chion who who was the first to make the point and many people have stolen it, including me, that uh, Dorothy Valens, who's played by Isabella Rossellini, is the is the first person who fascinates uh, Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Kyle MacLachlan. Uh, I mean, that's the, her fascinating him is the, one of the things that is the trajectory of the film. He finds an ear mm. displaced mm. from a person also. Yes. And that, that ends, uh, that, that brings him into the drama that's affecting her, which involves her son and husband being kidnapped, and the ear belongs to her husband. Who, who, I guess it's not too much of a giveaway to say that he dies in the mm-hmm. film. And and I think that the 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 what what's fascinating about her, and I think this is where she has this uh, alignment with Kantianism, is that there are, there seem to be two approaches to her. That that one is from the Jeffrey Beaumont character, and the other is from the Frank Booth. Dennis Hopper character, and they're both coming, one's coming at her, one might say, as a detective or illicitly, and mm-hmm. the other's coming at her in a criminal fashion or illicitly. And mm-hmm. and one of the things that Lynch is showing is the overlap between the licit and the illicit, and that's one thing that he does all the time. But this is a point Michelle Schill makes, is that her everything that happens in the film is designed to stimulate her out of her depression. Mm. Right, so even I th- yeah, he does so, say that. I think she wants to die. That's what right. That's, I that's think a, she, a, a so direct line. I think yeah. she wants to die, and it's not. And I think this is a crucial thing. It's not because her husband and child have been kidnapped, right? So no. And, and Shion's theory is actually what Lynch is showing that the kidnapping by and 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 is an effect to try an act by Frank Booth to try to keep her alive, right? Yeah, to to, yeah, to yeah. find something that will arouse her. And I think this unarousability, which is the which which is the state that she's in, and 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 he even says, "Don't kill yourself. Do it for the." He says, "He says, stay alive for Van Gogh," which is a joke <laughs> yeah. because he's cut right. off the ear of the of the husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but so clearly, he thinks she's on the verge of of killing herself or or falling in even further to this. To this depression, and and I think what, what what's interestingly Kantian about that is we have these two approaches to a thing, mm-hmm. which is Dorothy Valens, and and she's just inaccessible. I think that's the that seems to me one of the most striking things about the film is that that just the absolute inaccessibility of her. When when Kyle MacLachlan uh, Jeffrey Beaumont goes to her apartment the first time, so first of all his parents 
or his mom and his aunt, I think, warn him about going down to Lincoln Street, which is a bad part of town, <laughs> right. which is the right. street that she lives on. And then he goes to the he goes to her to 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 her apartment to act as if he's spraying for bugs, and right. that's how he's going to get in. And he 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 says, "Oh, she's on the I, I forget what floor is it like the eighth floor or something." Mm-hmm. And 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 you look at the building, and this is where I think this incredible Kantian dimension of the film. It's very clear the building has three or four stories to it. <laughs> yeah. Like he's going to a story that does not exist. In the, and you could say like, oh, Bill Lynch didn't have that much money to make this film. So, you know, no, I mean, clearly he's, she exists in an impossible space nice. on the eighth yeah. floor of a four story or three story building. So I find yeah. that plus all this inaccessibility about her as a subject to be really crucial to this Kantian. Di- so you, I think the, you first watch the film, you're like, well, Frank Booth is this figure of the beyond. But mm-hmm. then if you think about it, it's I think it's actually Dorothy Valens who's this figure of the beyond that we don't have any access to as spectators and that the protagonists don't have access to either. Okay, this is great. Um, I want, I want to uh, really seize on this idea of the beyond because I think it's really important. And so and that this is where we, I think we have to talk about the sublime. So I want to give a nice little, right. Uh, right. nice little, Definition, and this comes from Deleuze in Cinema 2, where he's bringing in uh, Eisenstein as well uh, in Montage. Let's be clear, Ryan Angley is quoting Gilles Deleuze <laughs> in a positive fashion, just to, just listen, to note that listen. at the exact point of this podcast. When listen, it's not that the, like, I think people get it twisted. It's like what we have, uh, we don't agree. There are some fundamental assertions uh, on uh, contradiction and desire and subjectivity that we are just on the other side of from Deleuze. Yeah. And we have talked about this on this podcast and other people's podcasts. And yeah, that's what it the, is. Actually, just the <laughs> essence of his philosophy. That's all. <laughs> that's all that it is. Oh, yeah, nothing, that's all that it is. Nothing, yeah. nothing major nothing, or anything. Nothing very serious. No, of course. Yeah, if you hear that, I mean, of course, it, it does cut at the core of, of obviously what he's doing. But that's, I think, yeah. I don't know why it sounds a certain way. But this is, uh, I think this is yeah. pretty good from him. So I yeah, wanted to good. So I wanted Sorry to put this in here. Sorry for that detour. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so this is cinema uh, in cinema two, and he wants to get at a dialectical sublime. Okay, okay. And interestingly, I think part of the reason why this works is because when he talks about dialectics and Hegel, I think you and I don't think he he's he knows he's, what he's talking he's, about. He's quite on that, but yeah. I think Eisenstein because it brings him to it. That's what I think. Yeah. Even yeah, yeah. so, Good. okay. So he says this. This is um, if anyone needs it. I don't know. It's on, I think it's on page one. 58. Uh, the cinematographic image must have a shock effect on thought and force thought to think itself as much as thinking the whole. This is the very definition of the sublime. So I think that's pretty good. I think, I mean, and he's of course influenced from Kant. So that's why I thought to, to go to him on this one and for, for, for this episode. Um, I think that's great. And, and what, uh, we're going to keep using this, uh, this word, uh, the beyond, uh, because the beyond, um, I, I think for like, so we'll, we'll say it for Lynch. And then I think that hopefully we can make the, the connection to the, like make the, the Kantian, um, resonance is that he, I think this is what makes, uh, Lynch's, uh, film whole, his whole thing, like really off putting to people is that he puts the, um, he puts the beyond, um, in front of your face and he doesn't have a 
it's not uh it's not always beautiful and it's not always completely horrible and i think if it was either one of those right. states completely right. i think a lot of diff- people would have a, a, a different reaction like for example i'll i'll say this like uh, you know, people. One of the things people talk about with Blue Velvet, like Roger Ebert, did not like this film. I don't know if you ever read his. Re- he yeah. hated it. Yeah, and w- he thought it was insincere, which I do not yeah. think that. But uh, I think that was sort of his big take, um, his takeaway. And he thought that the the violence and uh, was uh, gratuitous. I, I don't think I don't think that. Uh, I think it's it's uncomfortable, is what it is. And the reason why it's uncomfortable is like if Frank Booth comes into Dorothy's apartment as Jeffrey's watching and. Yeah she's only like, I, like I, 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 this is a counterfactual and it's speculative. So I couldn't really prove this, but I think if Frank Booth comes in and he only sexually assaults her and, 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 and it's the way that a sexual assault might be in like a regular film or like yeah. some, yeah. any, like any episode of law and order SVU yeah. where there's a sexual assault. Yeah. I think people could handle it's that. Fine. Yeah, it's, it's I, fine. I actually think people can handle it, but it's become because he comes in and he's, he's got funny. the nitrous, and he's yeah. got, and 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 there's the whole the whole the whole you know the mommy thing the like the yeah. baby wants to fu- like it's yeah. so you're 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 touching he like you're touching the beyond and it's also not it's it's also shot in such a you almost would say like a flat way like like uh, it's totally Lynn- flat I think this is crucial to understanding Dorothy right because yeah. her ahead, entire yeah, apartment. Lynch never. It's it's a obviously every apartment has depth to it because we're yeah. two di- three dimensional beings. I said we're two dimensional beings. We're three dimensional beings, and we ha- we need a space that has depth. But it's as if every not everyone, but people that study film will know that that deep focus is a common technique mm-hmm. to use to shoot a, a a space like an apartment. I mean, Orson Welles makes it we've talked about this many times before in the show and citizen kane uses deep focus probably for the first time in a thematic way and in indoor shots mm-hmm. uh it's easier to make it was hard to do it indoors because of the lighting situation and so mm-hmm. you could shoot jean renoir does it in the famous hunting scene and rules of the game outside but he did it he sometimes did it inside but it was harder because of the light situation but wells has a great uh, lighting setup, he's able to do it. Um, one of the things that stands out about Blue Velvet and Dorothy's apartment is it's utterly shot in what we would call shallow focus, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it seems as if it's just a flat plane, even though there is a, and the back is actually dark. So there's no, yeah. it's not like the back is, so if you shoot in shallow focus, the the back, t- what's further away from the camera tends to be, this just makes sense, of course, from the term, <laughs> yeah. out of focus. What Lynch does to solve that is he just darkens it. So everything, yeah. so you just get a flat, it's an utterly flat. And so I think that point is so good on your part that this you're just really confronted with the total flatness of the image, I think. He he does, and Lynch does this a lot. Like I, I, I'm, Twin Peaks is always on my mind because I'm teaching it this semester in one of my classes. Yeah. And um, he does this thing a lot. I, I finally, because it was finally watching Blue Velvet that I, I landed on the word what he does is he puts people in dioramas. That's what yeah. he does. Yeah. And and I um which I think is a huge influence on uh 
the person who did um, uh, Hereditary, uh, uh, Ari Aster. I mean, it, it's like actually quite graphic in that film. Like, there's huh. a diorama thing, in the, but I think he has really taken taken this from from Lynch. Would be my uh, my assessment. But um, but I think it's one of the things about uh, Lynch's cinema that um, it seems like it's uh, it seems like it's bad. Like it seems like it's actually bad filmmaking, right? Um, right. I, I, you know, and and but he he puts he puts these people in uh, in dioramas, and it's a way of um, I, I think for this particular film, uh, which is, um, you know what? Hold on, I want to ask you a question. Do you consider this a neo noir? Because it is often considered. Yeah, I think a so. Neo- I think okay. so. Yeah. Um, I I think that except it's don't you think it's so hard to talk about any kind of genre with Lynch? I just think it's always. He, yeah, that's true. I mean, other but, than surrealism, I guess, which isn't a genre. I just think it's yeah. hard to. But neo noir is not necessarily a genre either. So no, yeah, I, I think it's a. I think it's a neo. But yeah, I think if you were going to make it a genre, you and I talked about this before. If it, it the I think most, I'd have to th- I think about this with John Wick, which most people, which I think has the style certainly. Yeah, the style, um, but but not the, the narrative at all. I don't think so because what the if you put like a Memento or Blade Runner, this movie, then Twin Peaks, Angel um, Heart, yeah, okay, and um, you have the detective and what the detective is investigating something, but it the what ends up kind of dominating the narrative is the detective is investigating like themselves, like themselves, right, and 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 that 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 and that is true of this this film, so that's I think that's what makes it fit in that definition. Absolutely. Can I just can I just add oh, one little thing yeah. before you go yeah. on? So yeah. it, so I think you've made the case for why Ebert couldn't possibly have liked it, the film. And I think you're that's exactly right. He mm-hmm. and he and Gene Siskel, which was his partner, so Siskel, they both died kind of tragically. Mm-hmm. Siskel died of a brain tumor and then Ebert yeah. died of his his face. He got face cancer and had to yeah, take his horrible. face off basically. Looked I saw that document I I almost never watch documentaries, but I happened to see the Ebert documentary in the theater, and it was just so graphic and so painful to watch. But he, I think so. They they uh, they both were alive and reviewed Lost Highway in nineteen what is it ninety seven or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and they and their 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 response was two thumbs down. They hated it, right? Mm. And so Lynch himself authorized a campaign in newspapers uh, <laughs> for Lost Highway that said Siskel and Ebert two thumbs down as if like <laughs> this was the reason to to see the film and they were both irate and they thought this is he's just mocking us he doesn't have the right to do and I thought that was so funny like you have the right to say thumbs down to one of the great masterpieces in the history of cinema fine okay you don't have to be smart it's not a regulation um but then you you can't get upset when the filmmaker uses your critique as a way to promote the film. I mean, I yeah. thought I just when I saw that ad in the I was in living in Los Angeles, I saw it in the Los Angeles Times. I just I thought that is a that ad itself is a work of genius. But I I just <laughs> I I like I like Ebert especially. Yeah, fine. You know, he was a film. He was almost got his PhD in in film, and in fact, uh, was a student at the University of Chicago with. Mac Davis, my the person I mentioned, <laughs> no way. my I didn't yeah, know that. yeah. So he knew Ebert. I mean, they didn't keep in contact or anything. But oh, that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, he's he's a failed English graduate student who wasn't a failure. He you know no. he made no, the best of it. 
Absolutely. Oh no, he's great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's really amazing. I really like his. You know, uh, I really like his work. Just in, yeah, I think in, he has pretty in, good in, taste, actually. Yeah, in yeah. terms of things. Yeah. Speaking of aesthetic judgment, yeah. So yeah. the um, uh, on the diorama point and yeah. the neo noir point, and this is what I wanted to to draw together, and then I want to maybe see if we have uh, well, bring this to critique of pure reason. So there's a lot I'm trying to do in the next few sentences. So let's see if this works. Okay. Um, I don't like uh, Lynch doesn't just put people in dioramas just for just to, to do it because it it looks it looks good right like that's the thing like like it's it's not he's not not just doing the shallow focus thing that Todd is describing just because that's the that's the style there's always this like there's always some point to it um, and what it's happening with this diorama aspect is it increases the loneliness and the uh, Lack of being able to uh, escape and to get out for Dorothy specifically, like it's it's like the space right. is is very very enclosed on her, and this really important aspect. You know, we talked about this with the noir many many episodes ago. Is that um, there is a uh, there's a thread of fatalism that runs through a lot of the noirs, and one of the like the extra diegetic reason for that is because in a noir you have characters who are committing crimes and they will need to pay for them in accordance with the Hollywood production code. So the second that they step foot into this like criminal world, it's not going to end very well for them. And uh, I think Dorothy as a figure, I mean, she she believes she has been that she's just fated to have that kind of uh, like a horrible, a, 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 a Kathy Moffat, you know, uh, end to her, uh, to her, her, her story. Like she, she's a, uh, if she, if Dorothy is a femme fatale, it's, she's one, I think also kind of like Kathy, like one of circumstance. And it's like, yeah, it just sort of, it, it, it happened to them. And I think that is why she wants to die. Like you could make, make that, that kind of uh, yeah. genre. Yeah. Uh, yeah. like she's in a position to have to die for something like in, I don't know, like in another, uh, in, in another kind of film, like maybe she's the one who kills, uh, Frank. If you can imagine an earlier, uh, kind of noir, like she kills Frank and then she also has to pay for that as well, even though she got her, her retribution, you know, in the same way that, you know, Kathy kills, uh, wit and then, uh, dies at the end of the film with Jeff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, um, and where's the Kantian thing in this? Well, that's it right there. I think that um, this would be a way to see in uh, cinematographically the Lynch's attempt to to make us confront the like the the thing in itself that's at the center of uh, Kant's critique of pure reason. Uh, in well, I mean, in in places like it's, it's a huge hugely important idea that we're going to obviously tease out in future episodes when we go th- through the book but just to put down a marker here um well I want to well hold on I want to bring you in on this uh because it's it's uh, I think it's 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 important um the 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 thing his theory of the end itself leads him to the sublime we think Correct. Right. Is that so? Those two. I think those for two sure that's to be thought together. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, can you? I've done. I've done this. Uh, I've done the setup. I've set up the pins. Can you knock them down for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that that. So the idea is that um, 
Kant makes this distinction, as we talked about when last week or last two weeks ago when we were talking about the difference, what, what the, the preface, prefaces to the critique of pure reason, that, that Kant makes this really important distinction between the realm of appearances and then the realm of things in themselves, which are, for Kant, completely inaccessible. Right? Like the whole point of the thing in itself for Kant is that it's a, it's just a marker for what can't be accessed by our thinking. And that our thinking needs this realm that it can't access in order to, and it needs to think of it as a beyond in order to have this realm that he calls the realm of appearances or phenomena. You hear these terms, those terms are relatively equivalent. What aren't equivalent, and we'll get into this in later episodes, is thing in itself and noumena. But, mm-hmm. but phenomena and appearances are more or less equivalent. Although you, and you hear those substituted for each other all the time, even by important Kant scholars. So I think that's a fair, not an. I will. I tend to say appearances since Kant tends to say appearances too. But anyway, so that 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 distinction between the thing in itself and the and the and the level of appearance is for Kant allows us to to make sense of how we that that laws of knowing can. And, and rules and can govern our thinking and and how and what goes on in the world. Well, because how do we know that it governs it? Because we're dealing with appearances. We're not dealing with things in themselves. And and he doesn't he doesn't think that we have any access to that realm. And he thinks that the the lack of access to it is what allows things to make sense for us. So that's the crucial thing. I think that mm-hmm. that 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 ends up leading to the, the the theory of the sublime because the sublime also is what's beyond. So the, the sublime isn't itself, he, he couldn't say it's a thing in itself because there would be no possible experience of it, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's akin to a thing in itself insofar mm-hmm. as it's something beyond the realm of ordinary appearances. And so there is this link that Kant himself doesn't trace out between the critique of pure reason and the critique of the faculty of judgment along this, in this path from thing in itself to the sublime. And I think what Ryan's getting at is in the film, everything is structured so that there's this, everything seems ordinary and flat appearance, right? Like, like what Lynch is showing us in blue velvet is this is what a world I'm going to make it clear that this is a world of appearance. That's mm-hmm. the flatness is because when you see depth, you think this is a real world where there's something more substantial than just appearances. But if you see just flatness, then you think this is just appearances. And then within the flatness, Dorothy exists as this, all you could say is this yawning like abyss that mm. can't be made sense of. And I yeah. think that's, so we're going to connect a little bit with Lacan here because Lacan defines the sublime as the elevation of an ordinary object to the status of a thing, to the mm-hmm. status of das ding, a thing. Yes. And so this is where you see the connection between thing in itself, as Kant theorizes it, Lacan's das ding or the thing, 
and then the act of sublimation, right? So, so for for Lacan, as you uh, as Kara said, Lacan for for yeah. for Lacan, for Lacan, the, the there's an act of sublimation that occurs, and mm-hmm. then you get this beyond that puts an object in somewhat of the status of the Kantian thing in itself. So he he so you can see there's this real influence of of Kant on Lacan's theory of sublimation, which is a something that Joan Kopchak has has thought a lot about, I think. Like she's really invested in the idea of sublimation and 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 Kant's the way that Kant is impacting Lacan's theoretical development. Oh, absolutely. That was great. Uh, uh, and I think very helpful uh, for, for, I think, I, I mean, for me, and I would hope for everybody else listening. The, um, there's some, there's some things in, in Lynch's cinema that, that intersect here um, on this, on this level. And specifically yeah. this, this, um, the Lacanian bringing that in that the, of, of elevating the ordinary object to yeah. the level of dusting. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, that I, I like that he does, and you can. Um, I think I'm tempted to say this: these are the realist moments in uh, in Lynch. Is there's a lot of like back stairwells and basements, and just like yeah. very ordinary, r- regular plate lobbies. These like these realms of, uh, of of egress that are otherwise ignored they, they i don't think they would they're out of place in a consideration of what film can do from someone like crack hour yeah like i i and so he's got that right and then he 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 also wants to put us like literally in the ground like we are in the grass we're the camera is right pushing blades of grass we are like in dirt he does this a lot in 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 twin peaks as well like we're like in the dirt, we're in the ghost wood, where yeah. the, the you know the, the camera is, is is like seems like it's it's actually moving earth as it's like tracking. Uh, right? How did that shot? How did he even do that shot in the beginning of the film? Right? Like when he goes into I, yeah, the ants. Right? It's yeah. incredible. I, yeah. I, I, I I you could do a whole hour long discussion on just the opening. What is it? Maybe <laughs> like twelve shots of the film. Right? Yeah. Like it's just it's it's just incredible. It's incredible. It is, and, and with the firemen waving, right? Yeah, the firemen <laughs> waving, and then the father collapsing the castration. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, I think this is an obvious reading, but yeah. the the castration of the father, the collapse of the father function, is what opens up this horrible underworld that yeah. we see taking place throughout the rest of the film. And it, it, it's it's interesting to think about it in relative to classic film noir, right? Because mm. in classic film noir, there the 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 father is a rival to the yeah to the to the detective right like that's the that's the pro- i mean that's the problem there's a there's a rival uh for the de- know, for the detective soul maybe or something yeah. but here here the the father and and maybe that's one of the things that defines neo noir is that the, the there's this collapse i don't know i'd have to think that out but there's yeah, this collapse yeah. of the father function where whereas in the in in classic noir, like Keys is a father figure in Double Indemnity, and for he's sure. he's 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 competing for Walter's soul with the the femme fatale, right? And then or the and, or the Sternwoods in uh the the in a uh, Big Sleep, 
in big right? sleep, right? Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. What's Mister Sternway? I forget what his. Um, yeah, I'm forgetting his name, name but yeah, but, that's but, why I said the last name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he's he's the like he he's clearly Marlowe's Humphrey Bogart's. He's playing a father. He means a father to the to the femme fatale. Yeah. Uh, right. So I think that mm-hmm. that's yeah, and I it, it's in multi. You got it in Maltese Falcon, Casper Goodman, and right. I think that they're, they're, I think there. It's hard to think of one where there's not this paternal figure who's omnipresent and threatening. The one that I don't you think the one interesting interesting exception is out of the past because wit. Yeah, you cannot. He is not a father figure, right? He's no. a competitive. He's a he's competition for Jeff, right? Um, I think it has to be the cop for the his uh the the woman for um Wizard yeah maybe right. But he's such maybe. a mar- He's marginal in a way that those other father figures aren't, right? Your Anne's yeah, no, ultimate boyfriend. Well, I mean, yeah, we assume yeah. after the film. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. But but I think what's what makes out of the past really fascinating is that it's the it's the like rapacious capitalist not mm-hmm. the paternal figure so it, it, it it's the great noir critique of capital and not of edipal relations it's, right and the, like wouldn't, I, wouldn't it, the great noir critique of edipal relations it probably has to be um double indemnity no sorry it has not to be double indemnity. Indemnity. No, 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 no 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 i was gonna give another one. i was gonna give you Mil- mildred pierce Oh right, right, yeah. right, right, yeah, right. But I mean, you you could. It's interesting because one's focused on the mother, the other's on the father. Yes, right. So yes. yeah, yes. so th- yeah. Th- those would be an interesting triptych, right? That yeah, that out of the past this is the great critique of capital. Uh, Mildred Pierce, the great critique of the feminine Edible complex, and, yeah. Then, yeah. and then double indemnity, the great critique of the masculine. Because I think that that's the. Yeah. I mean, that's what separates out. Of, if people say out of the past is the greatest film noir, which I think they're, I. I think they're right to say uh, mm-hmm. it's because of, it's because it has this injects this more that the capitalist is the main competitor mm-hmm. and, 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 and that, and that Jeff is trying to like, wait a minute, I'm just trying to be a good capitalist. Can I just do that? And the answer is you no, know, you can't. <laughs> no, it's right? not possible. You yeah. can't just run, run this gas, the, the, what does he run? Right. The gas station, gas station or whatever. Right. He goes, yeah. I yeah. make a little profit. Then I go to the grocer, buy my, he even has this nice little explanation of Adam Smith. Yeah, he does. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I totally forgot that. That's so. And funny. it's like, yeah, nah, you you owe me, buddy. He's like, he's like, no, it's debt. Like debt, so it counts. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great about. It's like how finance capital is behind all that competition crap, right? So I think, yeah, yeah it's just it's so great for that. But but I think what's what's fascinating about Blue Velvet is that you get the absolute collapse. The film begins mm. with this collapse of the father function, and then everything is triggered. Like Frank Booth isn't another f- father figure to him. No. I mean, I think people have said that. I think that they're, they're wrong. I don't think that. I don't like that he has these good and bad fathers. I just don't think that that's. Yeah. Right. No, I think. Well, let's compl- complicate that just like very briefly. I, I think he. I think that the film just just from the way you're laying it out is that like you you have the uh, the departure of the nor- normative father figure in this like exceedingly in this world of appearances right yes like that's yeah. you know in in this ex, yeah. ex, almost excessively uh, uh this excessive world of appearance right just it yeah. it, it, ex, it excessively appears is what i want well, to say you know can, like, can we talk it, about that for a minute because yeah, don't sure. you think it's very that open obviously it's very it's a bizarre situation it's very yeah, bizarre yeah. uh 
but it's also, isn't what's also funny about it is, and it's so colorful, right? The mise-en-scene, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Every yeah. shot is beautiful. Yeah. Yes. But, and this is, I think, the point you were just making, it's still flat, Right? Yeah, like it's not. <laughs> yes, like usually yeah. it's really weird because I think we assume, like who's the great beautiful Technicolor filmmaker from the fifties, oh, Douglas Sirk. Right? Oh, who were you going to say? Oh, okay. I said Malik. Like, I thought you were going for the recent times. Oh, I think more recent. Had, I, okay, yeah. Malik for sure. Yeah. But 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 yeah. but all both of them are are. Filmmakers I think I talked that, over you, so you say the name of your filmmaker again. Douglas Sirk is who I said, and you said yeah. Terrence Malik, and I think. Yeah. Malik is a filmmaker from the 70s and Cirque from the 1950s made these five incredible melodramas. Unfortunately, one's in black and white. Uh, but they're <laughs> Unfortunate incredible. for this point, not unfortunate for the film itself. Right, unfortunately yeah. for this point. Right, exactly. <laughs> that they're incredibly beautiful films. Technicolor, incredible. Uh, but they're also, they have, part of the beauty of them is the great use of depth. Right, mm-hmm. like you see, like there's a big hall, and you see all the color as it goes back. Right, you see in someone's office, and I'm thinking of the end of Written on the Wind. Like you see the office, mm-hmm. and, and it's mm-hmm. like you see everything from everything's in focus. Right, and and what Lynch doesn't, even though the shots are outside, they they have this incredible like the when the fireman goes by waving. Yep. it's yep. incredibly flat, and I think yeah. that that's there's something. That's really off-putting, isn't it? That yes, you have this beautiful is. color. I mean, it's not shot in Technicolor because it's 86, so Technicolor's dead. Uh, right. Do you know the last Technicolor film? You'll uh, never guess. If you don't no, know it, no, you'll just never try. guess. Okay. Don't even, I'm is, not even it, try. It, it, I don't even know why he did it. But Coppola shot Godfather Part Two. No. In Technicolor. Freaking way. Okay. Isn't that crazy? It's the craziest <laughs> like it's it's one of those it's one of those trivia questions that if there if you just don't know yeah there's just absolutely no way you would ever get it seems washed out and yes. just you know like if you're thinking yes. of like oh wait a minute like Fredo's death that seems really dark and dismal and yeah you know, like where's the great technicolor moment of that film I mean That's even so one funny. it seems more colorful doesn't it like the party scene and the so I don't know. That's it's just weird, but that's the last of so '74. Is when Technicolor died. Uh, so it had a. What it was born in '35. So it had, mm-hmm. you know, like third. But but basically by the '60s it was faded out. But if you watch, like this is why Singing in the Rain and these films are so mm-hmm. beautiful because yeah, they're yeah. Why are they shot pop? in Technicolor. Yeah, yeah, yeah incredible. And it cost a ton of money to to do it and. And they decided it's better to have like washed out films and we could just, you know, I'm watching True Detective right now, which is in Alaska. We could just shoot it in Alaska. Actually, shot in Iceland, which is weird. Uh, We could just shoot it in the dark and dismal world and then we don't have to worry that it's washed out and looks bad. (laughs) (laughs) But it sucks for musicals. Uh, That's true. (laughs) It just does. But it even sucks for neo-noir because can you imagine what Blue Velvet would look like if it was a Technicolor film? It would be... Yeah. I mean, it should have been. But Lynch, he never has had any money to make it. Yeah. No, but I think that that would have... I mean... I would that I think that that makes it not so flat. I think it would it would detract. Well, from, there's the danger, right? There's yeah, the danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's and a then, good point. And then you. you don't get the you don't get the thi- like it's it's a, so the word that that I've been like intentionally trying not to use is to is to say that it's um uncanny because I trying to steer away from the like 
uh, I don't know. Like the so that's the, we talked about this. That's Freud's uh, essay on aesthetics, as he announces yeah. in the first yeah. line of the of the of the essay. And what he w- is trying to look at is uh, he sets it aside from intentionally from a, a theory of beauty, and he wants it to be like a you know uh, a theory of the uh, of the as we keep saying of like, of what's off putting and why does it uh, why do, why does it why does it put us why does it put us off? Um, and I. I think I've been avoiding it because I didn't want it to have too much ex, uh, explanatory thing right, too many, about it. Too many, but too much jargon. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, exactly. Too much jargon for one episode. But I mean, it is useful, like, to think about. So the the quick one sentence gloss on the uncanny is the uh, uh, the disquieting recurrence of the familiar, and yeah. I think, um, I don't know that that is how I is why it's off putting in this film. I don't. So that's why I, I think yeah, I, don't, I agree. I agree. Yeah. That's a really good point by you. I don't think that's it so much. Uh, no. I think it's, I think part of it is this, is this shallowness. Yes. And, and, and beauty put together. That seems like yeah. a, the fact that it's not, it's not, there's no depth. Ever. I mean, there's depth. It, what's interesting is there's some depth in Frank's world. Yeah. Right. But not in, not in Dorothy's, and I think that's yeah. pretty. Yeah, interesting. well, it's like it's di- like it's dark and dismal in her world, and like and and uh, Jeffrey takes the dark and dismal stairwell up to her right. uh, a- apartment. Right. You know, like it's so there. You definitely have that. You have that color that color difference in the uh, right. like at the beginning and the end of the film, and then you know you see Dorothy with uh, with her son at the end. He's got the the he's got the pinwheel cap. He's got the pinwheel you know, cap. Yeah. It's yeah. just so uh, like so. And anyway, the um, the way I mean, this is a critique that a lot of people launched about the film that it, it was it was a you know, about renormalization at the end, which is mm. the most absurd but, criticism I could possibly. Yeah, Lynch is too much a fan of the normal. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I Good think point. that's that's yeah. <laughs> well. I think that's. Um, I mean that that's what that's what I think and again why why I don't I don't know that the uncanny it does a good job of explaining it here it's because it's uh the world is if you want to say it, it like the world ends up like Sandy's dream maybe at the end maybe that's what that's the objection of, yeah. that would be the objection but it's just don't we know aren't we allowed to know <laughs> as the audience that it it's still a world out of joint like I think that, like, especially because the mechanical Robin is eating the some grotesque bug, right? I mean, right. Like, that's the yeah. That's the final image of the film. So it's right. It's it's this and that. It, so that's where the the like uh, I don't know Lynch is like a like as a nature or uh, or environmental right. or, or eco right. filmmaker is really eco interesting because yeah. yeah he could because he could have ended it that way and he like it could have been on our actual bird. You know, and if he wanted, like yeah. um, you, you know, he has no. I mean, it's, isn't it a real bird? And the like, the first image of the Twin Peaks introduction. Yeah, yeah, for sure, a, for sure, for sure. It's an actual yeah. bird, and he, yeah. and it dissolves into the smokestacks of industry. Yeah. So you, so you know, he's got yeah. the like the natural and the you know the yeah. the the machine yeah. like you know over overlapping uh, each other. Like so, like he he could have he could have done that, but yeah. instead he on purpose has it. It's off, and so like what I think that like the that is is what you're I, I don't know that's kind of what I find more striking is that like I don't and maybe this is why what, what came off to Ebert as insincere is yeah. that it's 
it feels like, oh, the world has been put to rights, but then you just have this like creeping sense that like that's crazy. Like how can anyone right. how right. can anyone in this world act like what happened in the film didn't happen at the end? Right. Because that's kind of that is how that that is how right. it ends. And I think that that's another way to just bring this back to our sort of focal point here. Yeah. I think that's another way that um Lynch puts us in an uncomfortable position to the to the beyond because it's almost like because aren't you almost like as the viewer you're like no 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 don't just like don't just like hug your child in a park don't you like have <laughs> don't just like don't just be be having uh you know a, a picnic uh right. or, or, or or sitting outside like is isn't there like is sure there, like, her husband's hu- dead for one thing and he seems her to husband's be just dead like the- it, like where's the huge wound in the world that like we're yeah, not no like sort of paying about paying that, attention to right yeah, so like it's again, it's this other way of like giving, and this is I think the one sentence thing is that like Lynch gives appearance that like puts you in very close touch with the beyond, and that's right. and he doesn't he doesn't um, I think it's not like uh, uh, I don't know it's not like a film like uh, I think her where it's it's the uh, the idea of the AI this like w- that has such like an impossible like like love and like an impossible kind of subjectivity like right. is itself th- this this site of of beyond and is really like unreachable what lynch does is he makes something that it seems so reachable but it just hits you in the face with how beyond it is and i think that's right, that's what we're trying right. to draw out yeah yeah that. i think that's absolutely right and i and i think the so what people don't like about the ending is not um, not a lot of people, but a significant number. They, they they what they don't like is that it seems like we're reconciled again to this world of appearances, and mm-hmm. I think that that's what that's in a way Lynch's point is that we're constantly living in this world of appearances, and that's haunted by things in themselves, and that yeah. we and, yeah, and nice. I, I think he's trying to I think the final shot of the bird is an attempt to say we're never without this thing in itself that escapes our perceptual apparatus, right? That's that, that exists beyond. And I think that that the other place that this gets, I think most clearly underlined, and I've talked about this as a instance of the gaze in cinema, maybe ad nauseum, uh, is the point where, so, uh, Sandy and, and Jeffrey are driving on a, they're on a date. I think it's their mm-hmm. first date, official yeah. date. It's in the evening, and and Jeffrey thinks Frank Booth is following him in his car, and he's so he's driving. So the person behind him is like honking the horn, and he and so Jeffrey thinks he's in grave, danger. Da- grave <laughs> as as Jack Nicholson would say. Is there, is there any other kind? It's it's grave <laughs> danger, <laughs> right? Uh, and 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 he, he and but then Sandy sees in the car, and she's like, "It's just my boyfriend, Mike," and so then. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey pulls the car over and they happen to be in front of Jeffrey's house and they're having an argument on the front lawn. Um, Mike's going to, he's like, I'm going to kick your ass and a uh, college boy or something. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and it's a, it's, it's one of the greatest moments in Lynch because you, you can watch this over. I've done it over and over and over again. And you cannot see where Dorothy Valens comes from. Like it's not, yeah. there's not a moment she's there. I mean, you can see like, okay, now she's there. She wasn't there. She's there, but you can't see like, has she walked from behind the house? Is she yeah. behind a bush? You yeah. just can't see. And which is, I think underlies this point 
of her status as ding on zich, a thing in itself, right? Mm-hmm. And so she walks out, she's naked, and she has her hands like Christ's totally at, at her sides, Christ on the cross. Yeah. And she start, she says, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, my, my, my little, my savior, you put your disease in me. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, every and, and then and then Mike's first line, Sandy's boyfriend's first line is, "Is that your mother?" Is that <laughs> your mother? Like, which is and then he crazy, apologizes. I lo- which is a crazy <laughs> thing to say. That's and, crazy. And then they and then they end up taking her back to Sandy's house and right. for the longest time. And this is one of the reasons. So the the reason why it's an instance of the gaze is you're as a spectator, you feel yourself implicated. You're like, oh, wait a minute. This is terribly embarrassing. And you're feeling the failure of you're, you're embarrassed for the characters in the film. And also they, mm-hmm. they wait for the longest time to put any coat or shirt or anything on yeah. her. And that's another thing. You're like, can someone just get a coat and put on her? Like it's, it's, she's just naked. And so yeah. it's a very un erotic nakedness it's un- uncanny to use the word that you were yeah using right, before right, right. but yeah. but i think it's it's incredible and i think it really is this is this she remains completely beyond and we have to confront that beyond as it intrudes which kant wouldn't allow for right as it intrudes in our world of appearances like it, there's something that's beyond that's intruding but i think that, to me that's yeah. one of the greatest depictions of this beyond this thing in itself that can't that isn't reached and, be, and 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 it's we're embarrassed for the characters in the film it's one of those times where you feel i, I mean everyone's felt embarrassed for someone else because they didn't want sure. embarrassed enough for themselves yeah. uh, my my dad i was constantly he was never embarrassed and so i had to feel embarrassed, <laughs> you for, had to him be embarrassed for him time yeah, and yeah. time and time again uh but I think that the 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 fact that they're the the characters in the film aren't embarrassed. We, as a spectator, we feel really embarrassed for them, and 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 that's our involvement in the film. But I think there's something still that what we're embarrassed about is this thing that within the image that can't that doesn't fit within the image that can't be integrated into the world of appearances. And as I think that we were talking last time about who's. When is Lynch Hegelian? When is he Kantian? Right? And sure. I think this is a moment of this incredible Kantian. I mean, you could read it as the Hegelian because we have to identify, but we can't identify with Dorothy, right? We can't. Mm-hmm. She's this absolute otherness that is just beyond for mm-hmm. the spectator, I think, just like for the characters in the film. I think you're also making a point I want to double um, yeah. about the interpassivity of it, which is that the spectator is embarrassed for because nobody on the screen is, seems to be embarrassed. Right. Um, right that Lynch does this and he is he's so great at this. He does a lot in his cinema where something else screams for another character um and which I I think I, I think he gets I think he gets it from from Hitchcock uh, from uh the the uh it's a very well-known moment and and the birds where Jessica Tandy goes to see her friend who's a farmer who yeah. she hasn't heard from in a while and then she sees that he's had his eyes pecked out oh. by these birds and she yeah. just and she covers her face and she can't scream and she gets in her her truck and um this is one of the great things about this is that in the uh, shooting script um Hitchcock wrote in the margins that the like the truck turning on the truck and and the sound of it it's it screams for her 
and, and so that's this, you know, to go all the way back. It's one of the great jump cuts too in the history of cinema, right? It's great. It's fantastic. It's yeah. Oh my goodness, it's so good. Yeah. And the this is this is interpassivity, right? It's the yeah, you yeah. know the for um, sure. The like the laugh track laughs for you. It's you yeah. know this 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 yeah. the uh, your Netflix queue watches for you. Your shopping cart that you don't buy the things from they it shop it buys them for you like that that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. And Lynch does this uh, like just expertly. Like it, uh, when Leland kills Jacques Renault uh, in uh, the first season of uh, at the end of the first season of Twin Peaks. He can't scream. He bites on his on his fist after he's done it, and at the same time, the um, heartbeat monitor is is right. flatlining, and so that's right. screaming for him. Uh, and then in the return, I, I think this is the best screaming for in anything is because it it's not it's it's indirect. Is when uh, Dougie is. Um, shocked into becoming Agent Cooper, so he sh- shoves a a fork in a electrical outlet and is uh, and is electrocuted. It's not Naomi Watts coming home and screaming. It's earlier in the episode. There's a, a character, and I'm forgetting if she's named or or what she's doing at I the don't roadhouse. Think she's named, no. Yeah, no. so she just starts crawling, and she starts crawling toward the the screen and screams. And if you play the scene. Uh, someone I saw someone do the, uh, like double this on on YouTube. It's like it's just so cool. If you play uh, this character getting out of the booth and crawling and then screaming, and it's overlaid with Dougie looking at his fork and then shoving it in the uh, the socket, it's yeah. exactly synced up to be perfect. So that when she screams, is at the exact to the second Amazing. when uh, you know Cooper, you know Tom yeah. McLaughlin shoves the fork in the socket. Okay, I. In rewatching this, one of the things I was looking out for was this moment because I think it's like a, like a, one of the the big moments of the film is when uh, Laura Dern screams after hearing right. uh, uh, Dorothy say repeatedly, "He put his disease in me." He put his disease in me. Yeah, and it's she not what you actually want to hear about your boyfriend, <laughs> your boyfriend from <laughs> this woman. No, you don't want to hear that. And but I thought, and then when I watched it, it was like she doesn't scream. It's the ambulance. That's oh, coming wow. to get Dorothy. And, Such a great uh, point, man. Yeah, yeah. It's just it, it like that's actually that's well, the scream that I remembered is the sound of make, the ambulance. Yeah, doesn't that make this point about the Kantian dimension of the film right? Like we mm-hmm. don't get on the level of appearance. There's something that's missing. Yeah, and so it's only it's only beyond right. Like there's just there's the level of appearances, which is so predominant in this film, like we're really confronted with the fact that we're experiencing appearances. Yeah. And then there's this, there's this other realm that we don't, that we can only allude to. We can't. And I think that's what, remember the, the line from the preface where Kant says we can, we we can't have cognition of it, but we can Mm. think it. Right? Yeah, like that's yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. we can think yeah. the thing in itself, but we can't have, we can't have cognition about it. So the 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 German words are, I believe, erkennen and for cognition, and it's translated as cognition, and then denken, as we can think. So we, mm-hmm. this is a this has become a common thing. I think my sense is that Frederick Jameson is the one that mm. made it common. But people will say, uh, I think the whatever, like I think the weather. Or I think mm-hmm. not, not, you know, and they don't use the, uh, 
the the the, the preposition. They don't say I think about the weather or I think yeah, yeah, I think yeah, on yeah. the weather. They just say let's think the weather today. Right, like they, sure. in, it's as as if that's how you approach something something theoretically. And there are people that don't like that. They think in French you can't do it. In French you have to say you think. It, it's interesting because people that are if you transliterate in your or trans translate in your head, if you're an English speaker, you tend to yeah. m- make this mistake all the time in French because you say je pense de. So I think of, because that's what we said, mm. right? I think of mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. But in French, you say, je pense à. So you say, basically you're saying, I think to the weather. So yeah. je pense à le climat or whatever, au climat. So, so uh, à la météo. So, so, the, so there's, so is that, that's a, but, but I think Jameson introduced this, I, I, maybe he, maybe there's somebody else, but I think it's a Kantian idea that you think of the thing. Mm. He's not saying mm-hmm. you think of or about right. the thing in itself. He's just saying you right. think the thing in itself. That's nice. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's kind of cool because then the, 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 what you have cognition of, you have cognition of the appearance, right? But mm-hmm. you think, just think of the thing in itself. I think it's a, that's a really fascinating, and, and that is a distinction that you can, that don't look, that Kant is able to do in German that we do mm-hmm. in English, but I think you can't, it seems to me you can't do it in French. So it's, and I assume, I assume all the romance languages are the same on that. Uh, and anyway, that's, I, so it does support uh, the, the, your point about the inner passivity really, I think nicely fits in with that. You're, you're able to think the thing, but mm-hmm. you don't have the, the appearance of it is it's out. It's restricted from you. Right. Right. Right, right, right. Because what, yeah, right. Because what I did in my memory was I collapsed the sound of the siren to Laura right, Dern right, screaming. Right, Like I, I, I fused it. But it's, yeah. it, it is, it's, it's actually only apprehendable in its separateness. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, I, that's, that's the key. That's the key point. That's what makes that. I think that's what makes that that scene well, well for for me at least. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's amazing, and that 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 scene is really the even though that's not the climax of the of the film it really mm-hmm. is the climactic part of the film because it, that that's just a, it's it's unforgettable so i have a yeah. little funny story about this is not really to do with the film but okay. so I, we had eric santner here as a as a oh, yeah. guest and he 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 doesn't look like me so much like he's thinner and <laughs> i don't know how could someone be thinner anyway he, he, he's just a slighter build than me and he's this yeah. is something different but he's totally bald and he wears glasses. He has dark hair. Okay, so okay. he this is uh, fifteen years ago, something, maybe more. Uh, and my, our kids were just they were they were two years old. They were just mm-hmm. uh, and they they so Eric walks into the. I wasn't home yet. Mm-hmm. Eric walks into the house. Or <laughs> I was no, I was already here. Eric walks yeah. in, and and. And Theo saw Eric, and he's like, he he was just totally perplexed because he thought, well, that's my dad, but that's not him. And so he 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 put his hands out like Isabella Rosalini on the lawn and just stood there 
for, for, <laughs> for like two minutes. He couldn't move and he had that look at, and Eric was like, oh my God, I've just created this character. I turned him into Isabella Rossellini from Blue oh Velvet. It was, I'll never forget it. It was just the, it was one of the most striking things. I was home because I, I did see it so I now remember. Yeah. But I was like looking at it and it was right in the entryway of our little condo and 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 <laughs> he just couldn't, he was just like, wait a minute. That that is is my dad, but it's really not. <laughs> it really that just is threw so him. good. So I that know that's so my little, which which I think is interesting because that's kind of uh, he had this experience of the uncanny, right? That's a, yeah, that's, that's uh, true. And I think that's, she's, a, that's a good example. Yeah, yeah, and she sure. is this figure of the uncanny in the film, and and it's it's interesting to think about the relationship. I think between the uncanny and the and the thing in itself, it's as if. There's a thing in itself that gets brought down to the level of appearances, right? Oh, I mean, that's, that's interesting. The, oh, that's that, a nice think, little reversal of yeah. of of, of, of uh, sorry of Lacan's uh, sublimation. Not yeah, the, it is not the Isn't base it? thing being brought up, but yeah. something being brought down. Yeah, I think that, I li- that's yeah. You could kind of make the distinction between uncanny and sublimation in that way. Right? Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I, I yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, I I. I uh, I mean, I can like I almost so yeah. So in that, just to is be the clear, though, f- Kant would reject right. totally. Yeah, probably because probably he, I, mean, I mean, like no, I mean, he just has to because his his whole philosophy is based on the absolute inaccessibility of the thing in itself. Although it can be thought, yeah. so that right, right, that right. is where we get this. I think that's where that's the the warrant for this position, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. I agree. I, you're, you're. Well, I mean, that's and that's kind of the. I mean, that's the kind of the edge. That's the tension point that uh, I, I, I want us to sort of trace because I think there's something productive here in this um, encounter. You know, like I, like I, I think you know because uh, we saw this in the last episode. Like, like um, you know, Zizek's reading of of uh, Lacan and and Hegel is just so influential, and uh, I think that like the the like the Kantian flashpoints in Lacan's thought and in psychoanalytic theory, like in general, I think are uh, dampened and muted. And, and, and because of Savoy. I don't want to say because of him, but I think that it's... Uh, no, I think he, you should say that. You I think, think I should say because that? because of him. Yeah. All right, okay. Sure, I'll, I'll do that. I suppose it's spicier. Yeah. yeah, so it's his fault. But I think it's... In in the sense that like his his reading, I mean his reading of of of, of Hegel and Lacan is just so compelling, and yeah. I think that like I think there is something. It's a little like you you do have you have to do sort of what um what you did with uh with Lacan in this thing that you just wrote where you're splitting up uh these different eras for yeah. for Lacan's thought and especially you're looking at something like you know we brought it up a little bit today uh you're looking at seminar 7 and you're looking at Das Ding and you see like okay that how this intersects yeah. completely with the Kantian thing in itself yeah. and then that same concept and this is I think why the this is part partly why I think Zizek's thing has been so uh, influential is because Das Ding does go away and right. then as a lot of people observe you know you see Abjaya rise in prominence to take a similar place. They're very, they're different concepts and they do different things, but it maybe occupies that same place that you would have thought maybe Das Ding would. And Abjaya is more like Hegel's absolute. And then, then later you have the Lacan of the four discourses or the Lacan of the quadratic as uh, Rick Boothby has put it. And that seems to be a Lacan of Kant's categories. So, 
Right. I, you know, and and I think that, it, yeah. So anyway, like the it's so just there's a, a return little, to a Kant, a, a, like a Kantianism, then a Hegelianism, then a return to the Kantianism. I think that, yes. that to me, that's the my reading of the trajectory. Yeah, of, I th- I yeah. think so too. And I think, like, and it, but maybe another part of the reason is like one of the things I think Zizek's really good at um, is that like he in this Hegelian reading, like you can see how relevant like Hegel and Lacan are for, you know, contemporary phenomena. I mean, it was a huge influence on me. And so right. then I think, right. I think that then you, you get into this thing where like, okay, but if we're going to, if we're really going to drill down and we're going to be really specific about it, are we privileging being right and being like a technician rather than, you know, edging toward that, uh, that relevance and maybe that urgency that is, I think, more compelling and maybe more necessary f- for for theory. So, like, uh, and I yeah. mean, not, I don't think being not that I think you can be right and you can be urgent, but I also think that like there are things where like being technical takes you away, like being yeah. like really, really drilling yeah. down, like it, it it takes you away from something having this like uh, propulsion in 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 the moment. So. That's the kind of uh, I don't know. That's the sort of box that um, I think we're putting ourselves in for to try to see what we have here. Is that can we can we trace this out? Can can we be uh, like can we be technical, but in a way that is relevant and actually like compels and be urgent? Like that there's some reason to do this, not just that we can, but there's right. actually some reason why we must. And I think that right. for me is a big big distinction and, and, and it's sort of a driving force behind this inquiry that we're, uh, that we're doing. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree. And I think it's interesting um, what you said about Slavoj, because I was once talking with Gila Gofay about uh, something that Slavoj said about the formulas of sexuation and, and, and the way that relation worked in these famous formulas of no relation. And <laughs> yes, he yeah. said, well, he goes, you're talking about Zizek? And I said, yeah. He said, he, he, he's a Hegelian all the time. That's what he said to me. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that he think like his, it was his way of saying he's not really reading Lacan. Right. But I think what okay. you're saying is, yeah, maybe that's true, but so what? Like, is <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, like I don't. I think like someone can be technically right about a certain aspect of the reading and not have a as you as you just pointed out, not have the more relevant or urgent point, or or even or even I think this is even more crucial. Like they can be right about Lacan. You can be right about some little argument. And you can mm-hmm. be wrong about the larger truth of the yeah. point, yes. right? Like yeah. I think that's the Definitely. that's what I wanted to say to him. Like, well, maybe Lacan was just wrong, and <laughs> Slavoj is right about this, and so and and so I think that that's a that's something I think people lose sight of when they get wrapped up in a little argument. And I, I think the, the there certainly someone could come along to us and say, well, the way you talked about blue velvet in Kantian terms was anything but Kantian terms, right? Like sure. they could easily say that to us. Uh, we did a kind of violence to Kant. It wasn't, and and fair enough. But I think what we're trying to say is there's ways that Kant can help open up a film, mm-hmm. and then the film can help also open up Kant, vice versa. Like to, I think both of us are pretty committed to that idea yeah. that it can't be a one way street no. where you're just taking a theory and applying it to a film, yes. but there's a there has to be this back and forth interaction, or else it's not worth doing. I think. 
Right. Well, you just, yeah, it's just the, and I don't, and I don't say this in a, I don't mean this in a negative way. Like that is how you have to start to learn to work with these ideas is in this application way. It's, it's a very, uh, I think it's like sure. a very introduction to theory yeah. way. Like, um, yeah. you know, like, I mean, that's how, that's how I learned yeah, to do you it. You have to, you have to, you have to, but then I think that's the, that's the step. I would almost even say that's the, that's the difference between like, uh, undergraduate degree and a graduate degree is, is that step that you just said is to, right. to, no, to move from the application of, of the idea to, uh, to something to say like, okay, but where does that thing, uh, Open something up about the idea, or the thinker, or a trajectory of thought, a movement, or something. You know, and and so you have this reorienting this this uh um I don't want to use the word recursive, but you no, it's, it's like no, it's okay. Uh, I think no, no, that's right. I was going to say yeah. coextensive. That's I think yeah, the yeah. phrase I like. Yeah. I like to use. Yeah. So you have this coextensive relationship between the theory yeah. and the object. You don't have like it, it can't if it's unidirectional. Then I think that you run into like a huge so what problem right. with everything. Right. And so which is you know what uh, what we're trying to avoid. So um, because I I'm like the that way, Ryan, where you oh, said that you're an undergrad, you you apply the theory. Then in grads, as a grad student, you learn this coextensive thing, and then. And then what you forgot to add was that by the time you become a professor, you return to the undergraduate way of just applying <laughs> the theory. That's true. Right? Like that's, yeah. the, that's the path you follow, I think. That's true. Uh, it does happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, because you got to teach that, you know, so you have yeah, to. Yeah, to, no, yeah. No, I, 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 I was making a joke, but barely, right? Like it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. No, 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 yeah. it's a good point. I, I think, um, so as we're, uh, as we're, uh, Coming to our to our end on this little uh, little disquisition, this little entry into the lesson, a little inquiry into the lesson from the previous episode. I think um, what's the so what of this encounter uh, for, uh, for for us today? I want to. I have sort of my own answer. I wonder what yeah, yours. Go, give is. answer answer your answer, you answer first. I'll yeah. answer the question first. Okay. So yeah. I think the so I think the um, the so what of the uh, of our encounter here today has been to pull out um, Lynch's. Uh, the aspect of the of the appearance in Lynch as the site of the what is uh, off-putting and where I think I don't want to be too Hegelian about this, but where there is the depth on the surface. But like to just pull it back into the Kantian terms is that like what the appearance in Lynch does is it it confronts you with this beyond that seems to be tangible and reachable, but is not. And I think that's what is so peculiar and compelling about Lynch's cinema for the people who gravitate toward him. And I also, I think that is the exact thing that distances people from it. And I think if you can understand that, or you can see that whether you are a fan of Lynch or not, I think that helps you understand Kant uh, and this major, major idea that is in uh, critique of pure reason. And I think it also helps you under uh, understand, you know, what, uh, what's going on with Lynch uh, as well. And like one of the, more like one of the more interesting uh, filmmakers uh, st- still living, I think. So that's the, that's sort of the that's the so what. I think that, yeah, that's, that's perfect. I have nothing to up. add to that. That's, I, that's <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Uh, all I have to add is what's what's the lesson, Ryan? Do it. Oh, man. Well, I mean, you know, I think 
I think out of the past is challenging uh, Heather's for one of our favorite lessons. So we yeah, can't do we it. say we, it all the time, right? All the time. <laughs> right. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like not like you had a nice lost highway story. Um, and, and of course the thing with Ebert. So it makes me want to say lost highway uh, yeah, think, a little bit, I think but I maybe want to go, go ahead. Yeah. What is it? Go ahead. Where are we going to go? You're going to go. Well, I was going to say, I didn't know if I want, maybe wanted to go outside of Lynch on this one because yeah, it's yeah. a back to back Lynch lesson. So I don't, I don't know where I want to hear what you have yeah, to say. Yeah. So maybe, maybe the other film that we did mention is see the big sleep, right? I, I know we haven't ever said Ooh, that and okay. that we, we only briefly discussed it. Okay. Yeah. I, I kind of think, yeah, we, it, it's too obvious to have a Lynch film. <laughs> For the, maybe the, is the yeah, blue velvet is. episode. So yeah, so the, the lesson would be watch the big sleep, which Ryan and I just and I just want to put this thing in there because I like this lesson. Is the um, the very famous scene between Bogart and Bacall in the uh, in the bar where they're yeah. where they're talking to each other about horse racing, but they're horse really racing. talking about but they're really talking about fucking each other. That scene uh, is added after. Yes after the film was made because of uh, Bogart and Bacall really taking off in, uh, what, what was the film? I'm for, to have and have not. To have and have not. To have not. and have not. So, so to have so, and have, yeah. To have and oh, have no, not was made later, but released earlier. That's right. And it's a, then they it's became- It's an Abbey Road, uh, let it be situation. It is an Abbey Road, let it be very good. And they, uh, and they, they became so well known as this couple- and and loved that they had to add this scene. But this is, I think you can almost understand everything about film noir if you just understand this, right? That is that they took out this pretty long scene. It's like a five-minute scene where Marlowe explains to the police <laughs> lieutenant or captain or whatever yeah. exactly the plot of the film. Yeah. And like makes it clear what's and, and and the producers are Hawks. They Howard Hawks is a the director. They're just like, Yeah, we could just leave out and then who cares about the plot? We want this kept in. This this we want to add this stuff about with this exchange between it's an incredible exchange between Bogart and Bocall. So that it's, that's I love that. The other thing that's interesting about that, so we're talking about horse racing. And if you don't I think that they're because horse racing is so faded and popularity and rightfully so mm-hmm. i don't even go anymore which yeah, yeah, yeah. is kind of crushing to me because i I've, I've i placed my first bet on a horse when i was two years old which is <laughs> under the legal limit i don't know if people know that. well i would say well uh, under uh i i my grandfather put me up on the thing and i said two dollars on i named the horse <laughs> and uh, they took the bet so so but but the, the one of the things that they say in the film is you don't like being rated and then the, you yes. know, like being, and and I think that people would not know. Rated means you hold a horse back so that it has more uh, energy left at the end of the race to win, to come from behind and win. And so, yeah, that, I think people. I think it will soon, if it's not already the case, it will soon be the case that people that scene will not be as compelling to people because it will just make mm. no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes the uh, it makes the movie make less sense, but it is the most compelling thing in the movie. Yeah, it's incredible. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. All right, sorry for that long. <laughs> no, no, it's good stuff, man. Very good stuff. All right, all right, over and out, Ryan. Over and out, Todd.